You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine, and in this episode, I interview Greg Deek, product manager for motion control at Omron Automation Americas. Drawing on his decades of experience as an engineer in the automation industry, Greg delves into what sets a pure play motion controller apart from other controller types, such as PLCs, machine automation controllers, and IPCs, while taking into account the increasingly gray area between them. In addition, he discusses trends guiding the present and future of motion control technology and lays out what cutting-edge motion controllers are capable of. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the Design Engineering Podcast. Morning, Mike. Before we get started, uh, could you introduce yourself and what you do and, and where you work? So my name is Greg Deek. I am the product manager for the motion control products at Omron Corporation, um, specifically Omron Automation Americas. Little by back my background is I've been in the industry for over 25 years now, uh, most of the time as an engineer, about 20 years as an engineer, and about five or six years ago, moved from engineering into product management. Um, my company wanted me to want to be in that position because of my uh, history, my background with motion control, really been a motion engineer and a motion specialist almost my entire career. Gotcha. Okay. So if we're talking about motion controllers today, um, what is it that sets a motion controller aside from other kinds of control hardware? So PLCs, IPCs, uh, let's see, programmable automation controllers or or machine automation controllers, rather. Um, they seem to overlap quite a bit in some instances, or maybe maybe I've got that wrong. Uh, what What is your definition of what a motion controller is and how it differs? So for me, the definition of a motion controller is a controller that is really critically specifically designed to control the motion aspect of a machine. Um, it's been fun the last, really the last 10, 12 years to watch as, as you referred to them, PL, some people call them PLCs, some, some of them call them PACs, programmable automation controllers. We happen to call ours a machine automation controller. To see how they've advanced and really just gotten to be amazingly good, but there's still advantages to using a dedicated motion controller. Um, PLCs are great at doing IO. The connectivity of PLCs now is just amazing for connecting to things like vision systems, RFID, um, barcode readers, things like that. They do exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. uh, we started to build in databasing right from the PLC, so you don't need to have a uh, third-party PC out there to do the databasing. So there's been big advances, but they've really accelerated in motion. But there are still times where a dedicated motion controller, because of the flexibility, is needed in a system and really brings a lot to the table. We still do see sometimes as well where there's a PLC to be able to handle I.O., different types of interfaces, and then a motion controller dedicated to control the expansive motion that some machines need. Gotcha. So the advantages of, say, a dedicated motion controller as opposed to, we'll call it a crossover kind of, uh, you know, the like, a, like, like a hybrid, hybrid. Yeah, like a hybrid, right? And stuff. I mean, they'll, you know, as part of their bullet points, they'll say up to 64 axes, you know, and stuff for motion control, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily break down 
what does that mean? I mean, I imagine there are different, as you alluded to, there are many layers of uh, motion control capabilities. So is there is there a point at which, well, uh, let's get into that. What are the advantages of having a dedicated motion controller over other kinds of controllers that purport to do motion control? So a lot of times it comes down to a flexibility, um, being able to connect when you're really doing complex motion, a lot of times standard off-the-shelf motors and drives just don't accomplish what you might be wanting to do. So you might be looking at multiple different types of feedback devices, multiple different types of interface to different servo drives of motors, even steppers, um, but also then sometimes custom, custom kinematics. So when, they're, when customers, um, especially in some industries that need very high precision, very high throughput, like the semiconductor industry, the digital industry, with the new 4K and now 8K monitors coming out, the micro LED placement gets to be very, very high accuracy. And you're putting down so many LEDs for one complete product that throughput is just critical, extremely critical. Mm. So a lot of times you're trying to do uh, very specialized products. You're trying to make machines very smaller in those industries. Some of these specialized NC is getting very tiny numeric control or G-code control. Um, so they're running more specialized. So the connectivity, the flexibility and connectivity is important. And then also um, with a lot of motion controllers, you're getting away from some of these standard programmable languages, which do take a little bit of overhead and they're going to more of a script base. So PLCs, most of them nowadays run either IEC 61131 or a very, very close with the, that style function blocks. It's beautiful. It's a great programming language. It's easy to learn. It's easy to be able to program, di di diagnose machines that are having issues, but it does have a little bit of an overhead where you're trying to get down to very high speeds. Um, for instance, like some of our motion controllers can do 15, do five axis of coordinated motion and 15 microsecond update rate. Mm. I, I, I don't think there's a PLC or even IPC out there that could kind of hit that kind of a speed. So you're doing some very tight kinematics. Um, the motion controllers do have a distinct advantage over that. Gotcha. And so far as the programming is concerned, I mean, yeah, I have seen this sort of move, especially in the PLC range, and even even into other kinds of things, uh, say robotics, if they're not doing high precision kind of things. there It's a lot of visual programming. There's a lot of function blocks. It's sort of flow control, kind of low code environment. I imagine a, a dedicated motion controller requires having access to every bit of the capabilities of a motion controller and being able to fine tune every little bit. I imagine that that takes some serious programming chops to pull that out. Is is that is that just a reality of having that of getting that kind of precision or are there moves to abstract the programmer out, you know what I mean, in in order to make it easier to do those kinds of things? Well, we're, we're seeing more of a move of trying to make the graphical operator interface um, in motion controllers as well as PLCs. The PLCs have done a fabulous job with it. Motion controllers are getting there. A lot of it is the setup. We're doing a lot of graphical setup and interface to the setup. But when we're getting into the very complex high-speed motion, when it's really got to run fast, we are still seeing, in a lot of cases, proprietary script languages. Mm. Um, run, but what we also do run C, C++, so that as engineers are coming out of school, there are some native languages, what they've learned in school. So we're seeing um, 
in motion controllers, in a dedicated motion controller, we're seeing more of the configuration and the setup done in a more of a graphical interface. We are seeing some motion controllers do I.O. and things like that. We've played with it doing I.O. and some of that kind of devices in an IEC 61131 environment, but then still having the script language to run the text-based language to run the motion control to get the best performance out of it. Okay. Is there a fairly clear point at which a motion controller becomes the obvious choice? I'm thinking like if you if you think of like the the Omron MAC or the PAC stuff, they have they have pretty fast. They're pretty fast. They're I mean you know relatively speaking, they they can do a certain number of axes. Is there in your mind when you're talking to a customer or or looking at a project, is there a point at which it just makes sense to 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 go to the dedicated motion controller as opposed to it's, hybrid? It's it's that gray area is really growing. It's getting harder and harder to distinguish between the two. Okay. Um, when we look at it, we brought we brought some G-code capability into our machine automation controller. But just because of the inherent machine automation controller, um, it does it, it does it, but it, we couldn't bring in the full our full G-code capability. So when I, I when I'm talking to people, the things I'm looking at is I'm looking at what type of capabilities they need um, integrating a laser, for instance, whether it's etching, cutting, whatever you happen to be doing with a laser, um, EDM machines, they're doing very complex catamatics that a machine automation controller or programmable automation controller don't handle quite as well. So when I start looking at it, it's really, it's G-code. It's what kind of accuracies and speeds they're trying to hit. A lot of times, like in PLCs, we either lose speed to try to gain accuracy or lose accuracy to gain speed. One of the two, there's usually a point where you can only get so accurate so fast and motion controllers because of what they do can help. Um, integrating, uh, integrating lasers is very, very critical now as the lasers are growing amazingly more and more in the industry. Mm -hmm. So being able to do some of those very high accuracies um, overcome mechanical systems, um, compensation tables, things like that. That's some of the things that we do more in motion controllers than we do in PLC-based motion. Gotcha. Okay. When I think of G-code, and I've, I've heard you mention that a couple of times, I think of CNC machines. Uh, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't considered. Are motion controllers largely used in these kinds of, or analogous kinds of, Think, uh, applications to CNC machines, or is it, or is G-code more broadly used? When when you look at CNCs, they are motion controllers inside. The, yeah, it's yeah. CNC. It's the, the the HMI, the interface. Um, everything has been designed for that CNC. So there there are some there are some really nice CNC controllers out there that they they are motion controllers in their base. And then the companies that made them and developed them have done a very good job of making it easier to implement, easier. The, the main key is easier for the operator of that CNC to be able to make slight changes, do things on the fly that they don't have to go through and reprogram. That's the beauty of G-Code is if they're changing to another product, somebody doesn't have to go and program in the thousands or millions of small moves. They can pull them right out of the CAD file. So the, there's been really good work in the CNC realm where we see more of a little bit rawer, I'm going to say more of a raw motion controller okay. using these is the specialized NC. We're seeing more and more 
um, for the flexibility of it is like think about water jets, think about plasma tables, micro NC where you're doing, you know, we, we worked on a project where they were really looking at starting to CNC or mill a tooth right in the dentist's office. So the whole machine is only like two foot by three foot by three foot, very, very tiny. And you're not going to have a CNC operator operating that. So you need to do some really, really good GUI interface work for that. Yeah. User interface. Over your, I mean, given your, given your scope of your time in the industry and having watched what's happening, are all of these different kind of control levels just getting smarter and the other levels have to get smarter in order to keep up with, you know, I mean, you, you talked about that gray area and how they're all sort of encroaching on each other. What is, is there sort of a, a, a tendency or a trend or, or drift that you're seeing these kinds of components moving in? All, all the components are getting smarter. It, it's amazing to think one of the things I've been working on lately with a lot of the things we're doing is the efficiency of the machines. How, hmm. how long can we keep them running? Um, downtime is a big killer. We do that tremendously in PLCs. We do that a lot in PLCs. We're starting to do it more in motion controllers. So we're trying to use, you know, we some people call it machine learning. Some people call it artificial intelligence. We're utilizing that okay. more now to try to watch. And what we're really doing is we're trying to watch the machine and see if we see an anomaly that could create a bad part. When you're talk, starting talking about some of these products in the semiconductor and the digital industry and in the automotive industry, the end product is worth a lot of money. Yeah. And if you can see that something's happening that might cause a bad part, think about an engine block for a high-end sports car, that block is worth a lot of money. If you can say, hey, we're about to make a bad part, stop before we make that bad part and fix this, then continue, it is a tremendous price savings for the customer. So we're just seeing that. We're seeing things down to the sensor level be more smart. And then once you get that with IIoT and um, IO-Link, you're starting to see how do I get that information out to the controller? Then how do I use it in the controller? And so it's just, it's amazing how every everything, every aspect of the industry seems to just be getting smarter and faster and better. Yeah. I would imagine that there are, I, I think of like the maintenance of a machine, it sort of deteriorates over time such that, you might be in tolerance for a little while, but then it starts to, I, I don't know if it's possible, but feeding back any anomalies, um, who knows, a bearing that's getting a little loose, uh, um, a, you know, a, a drive screw that's getting a little bit wobbly, you know, and stuff. And the controller factoring in those degradations, like it's not bad enough to replace and shut down everything, but it's it's getting close to being bad enough to screwing up a part. So we're factoring in a little bit of wobble progressively into the into the trajectories or the kinematics of the system such that we keep it within tolerance without having to actually, you know what I mean? Like, is that is that a thing? That's, that's a big part of it right now. Okay. Um, higher resolution feedback, higher resolution encoders is critical for that to be able to really look at if I'm getting where my commanded position, my actual position starts to have a variance between it, uh, difference between them, start to monitor that. That's actually some of the things we're doing with AI is really make sure that because the, the feedback can be mounted then directly to the load. And now we're, we can measure we can have the feedback on the back end of a rotary motor that may be hooked up to a ball screw, and then we can have a secondary feedback device. And if the difference between the two encoders gets to be too much, we know that that's something happening mechanically. 
Mm -hmm. we could start to monitor that. So that's getting to be more and more of what were some of the things that we are trying to do with some of the new machine automation controllers. We're doing that a lot. We're monitoring. I've created, I've personally created function blocks to monitor the uh, commanded position and the actual position to be able to look at the commanded and actual velocity and the torque to see if we are hitting into something that's causing friction and causing higher torque to be able to maintain that same speed. And if we see it in the same place all the time, we can start to see that something mechanically in this position of the mechanical system, whether it's a ball screw, whether it's a belt actuator, a rack and pinion, we can start to see some of the things that happen and we can hopefully stop it and repair it before it starts making bad bad parts or stop it on a weekend when we're shut down for maintenance anyways and start to investigate and possibly repair those, replace those parts where we're not shutting it down in the middle of a shift. I gotcha. Okay. So you can monitor, see it happening, project maybe when is this going to become a, a serious problem, but is it to the point where you could dynamically change, like the machine could dynamically change its own way of operating such that it compensates for that creep in um, variance, I guess. I haven't seen much of that happening yet because okay. it's very hard to really predict on a predict what, they, what, what something that is mechanically failing, something that is wearing out, a bearing that's wearing out, how it's going to react. We can really just start to tell them to check it and possibly replace it before it does cause an issue. Okay. You mentioned the industrial IoT part of it. And what, to what kinds of new things are a part of motion controllers uh, at any level to sort of fit into that infrastructure, whether it's, uh, you know, a gateway or it's, uh, you know, a, um, OPC UA or, or um, uh, QT, uh, uh, MQTT or, or, or whatever, whatever kind of structure. Is that, is that another is that a trend that you see coming up in, in motion controllers, just being a good citizen in that kind of an ecosystem? It's it's coming up in motion controllers. I think it's coming up at a slower pace. Hmm. Um, all the things you mentioned, MQTT, um, it just, we, we've been implementing them in the PLCs first. Yeah. Um, and they are coming into motion controllers. The big thing that we have to look at is as we're creating a motion controller is what can we add without creating an overhead that's going to affect the motion. Gotcha. So we're trying to hit very, very high accuracies, very high speed motions. If the processor has to take off, and this is where a lot of the new processors have gotten really helpful is having a quad core or an eight core processor where I can have a core just be de designated to EtherCAT for high-speed I.O., for Ethernet IP, so to do different communications. That helps a lot, but it's a matter of learning how to be able to bring these things into the motion controller without affecting the performance. Gotcha. Okay. I hadn't considered that, that, that doing reporting or some kind of uh, updating of, of uh, larger, you know, uh, some kind of data that would necessarily degrade the performance of the, the yep. component and, itself. And as the industrial networks, Ethernet IP and EtherCAT, as they keep getting faster and we get getting new chipsets from them, that helps because now I can get more information out. There's just it it's so there's a lot of a lot of factors that is just helping us to improve in those areas. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
You know, when I started like uh, 10 to 15 years ago, there was a lot of talk about protocol wars, this, you know, Profinet versus, uh, you know, Ethernet IP versus something else. Is that pretty much all done now? Has everyone sort of consolidated not, on a few or not, is it? Not really. No? Um, okay. When you look, when you look at it, Ethernet, and, and it's because they, each one of these networks, a lot of these networks have their advantages and their strengths. Sure. Um, personally, we use a lot of Ethernet IP because it's very good for um, data collection. So for like traceability, to be able to take keep track of like, for instance, if you're serial numbering the parts and you want to keep track of like, say, a gasket. So if you have a bad batch of gaskets, you know exactly where it went bad. Hmm. That type of thing is Ethernet IP talking to HMIs is beautiful. It's very, very good at a pretty high speed and a lot of data. We also use EtherCAT for our deterministic high-speed I.O. and talking to some of our servos. A lot of our servos are EtherCAT-based servos. So that's been a strong one. Profi has a little bit, uh, has still has a very strong presence, especially in the European countries. Um, but when you look at it, they've really, a lot of the industrial protocols have shrunk quite a bit. I think those are the three big ones, Profi, EtherCAT, and Ethernet IP seem to be the, the big ones. We still yeah. see like some Mabus TCP IP and such, but it's mostly come down. And it's actually, a, I think it's a pretty fair market share, pretty even market share between the big three. Yeah, yeah. My my impression was always that prof, the ProfiNet was a very big in Europe and and uh, Rockwell's, or I don't even know if it's theirs technically anymore, but it's Ethernet IP was the dominant sort of... Yep. Protocol yeah, they, they in, in the, I believe it's the ODVA. So I think right. they're running the IP now. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. There was another one that you mentioned just a few questions back. IO, sorry, I should have written it IO down. link? IO link. Is that in the same category? Is that just specific I, to IO? IO link, IO link is, a, is a really nice network to get to the device level. Um, we use we use IO Link and we're starting to use it more and more. It's really it's kind of think of it as a sublayer to IIoT to be able to collect data. Um, with IO Link, we can take things like say a photo eye, and now rather than just seeing whether there's a part present or a part non-present, we can start measuring the quality of the photo eye of of the of the beam. And if mm -hmm. that beam starts to get low, say you're in a say you're in a in a, a, a packaging factory or doing packaging and on a packaging machine, you have a lot of dust because of the cardboard and things like that from the cartons getting erected and there's some cutting, maybe some cutting of the cartons. So a lot of times you're in a kind of a dusty environment, you can start to tell that the beam is getting it. It could be something just as simple as dust on the lens of the photo eye. Um, it could be in a welding environment, getting more slag on the proximity sensor. And it can start to give you ideas of you need to clean that lens before it shuts it down. So we're using that as um, just more, uh, just part of the information technology is what we're really utilizing it for in a lot of cases. And we also do have, there are some sensors that have parameters and those parameters need to be done. So if something runs into a smart sensor that has two, has game parameters, something like that in it now, a lot of those parameters are digital. In the past, it might have been a little potentiometer. You took a small screwdriver and adjusted the gain. Now that gain can be done digitally. And now the IIoT or the IO link can actually reload those gains when a, pro when a prox or a photo eye that has that kind of intelligence gets replaced. So if you do have something break, something runs into a photo wire or a prox that had some gain settings, the gain settings become right back from the controller 
rather than somebody trying to go find a laptop and tune it real quick. Gotcha. So that's a lot of that is being done. And we do the same thing with our with our servo drives over industrial networks, like over EtherCAT. We, we, we can maintain the parameters for the servo drives. There's well over 100 parameters in them. We can maintain them in the controller. So if that servo drive has to get replaced, it doesn't take a laptop and the other things that cost time. You can simply do everything from the controller and then your mean time to repair your MTTR will go down dramatically and it keeps you more efficient. So that I can visualize it, is the typical sort of hierarchy PLC motion is connected to a motion controller, which is connected to whatever the, the drives and the motors and the yeah. sensors to, to get the feedback and then back up the chain? Or is it? It, it used to be. Um 15 years ago, it was very oh, common okay. to have a PLC and a motion controller on the same machine. But what customers are trying to do is that gives you two programs to maintain. So yeah. everybody's trying to have less configuration time, um, easier to maintain, easy to troubleshoot. And it's really best to have one controller. So what a lot of customers are trying to do, a lot of companies are trying to do, is they're trying to look at their application. And customers know their applications well. They yeah. know them extremely well. And have them look at it and say, okay, can we do the motion in a machine automation controller? Can we do it in a Mac? If we can, we will look very close to having that be our only controller. Hmm. Can I do my motion and do, do I need a motion controller for my motion? And can I do the amount of IO and the other things that I need in a more dedicated motion controller? Um, we still have, we still have customers, quite a few customers who do use a PLC for a lot of IO for some of the safety things and then have a motion controller for a dedicated motion. Um, so it's, it's still today, but there are more and more customers stepping into that gray area that's kind of in between them and saying, okay, I'm going to do just the machine automation controller and I will do my motion so it all fits. Gotcha. So we've been talking about PLCs and logic controllers that are sort of veering into the, to have motion functions. Is it also the opposite where most dedicated motion controllers veer into the PLC so that, like you say, we only have one controller and and we don't have to maintain two or three code sets in order to make this whole thing work? Yes. Um, all of our motion controllers now have EtherCAT capability built into them. Yeah. And that is largely in part to be able to do I.O., to do inputs and outputs. Um, to be able to do safety. So it allows us to have a safety controller in there and still use the EtherCAT safety I.O. That allows us to get the I.O. to be remotely over EtherCAT. So yes, we do do that every day with the motion controller. Um, we have customers that are making different types of EDM machines, water jets, things like that, specialty NC machines that they have no PLC. Their motion is complex enough. They need to do a dedicated motion controller, whether it be two kinematic systems running together at high accuracy or whether it just be some of the G code they're trying to do. And then they don't have to have hundreds and hundreds of IO on their machine. It's just natural, just drop it all right in the motion controller and let it run. Gotcha. So that is a thing. That is a, a component of like a, a contemporary, a modern motion controller is that it can perform yeah. some of those, yes. some of those functions. So. I, I wanted to get back to something. Um, on the industrial IoT part of it, are you seeing more and more applications that <laughs> factor that in? That that's becoming a that that's becoming a thing. I had a couple of questions about this, but I just wanted to start there. Um, we're we're seeing people 
reevaluating their machines and looking at where that where how they can use that information and if that information is valuable to them if they are if they've had issues with with uh mean time to repairs in the past they may be looking at it just simply to try to reduce that if they're trying to get if they're trying to get more data and do traceability they may be looking for that it it comes down to just as any just as any product anything like that you're, it comes down to the application and what does the customer what are they trying to really accomplish in their next generation machine and mm. what different what different technologies can they utilize to accomplish it i see so only in a it's not it's not a sort of um future proofing we're not sure what we want to do at this point but it's nice to have that capability if we did need it in the future it's we have a present uh clear and present need for this and so we're going to build that in Yes, yes. I mean, there are there are customers that will start to look at having certain controllers because of that that capability is there because they are always looking at not necessarily just their next generation machine, but they're looking at the life of their machine and what the customer may be asking for in the future. As customers evolve and as their products get smaller and more complex, they don't always just want to run up and buy a brand new machine. They do want to be able to do upgrades. So a lot of OEMs are very good at understanding and the industry that they're servicing and what customers may be asking for. You know, they might have one customer ask for something, then they start thinking about their other customers and we need to plan for that because if one customer is asking for it today, tomorrow probably two or three other ones are going to ask for it. Gotcha. Is it the case that the industry is moving more towards sort of playing nice with others uh, I, again i'm going back a number of years there there did seem to be sort of a once you get in our ecosystem we kind of want to keep you there i don't know maybe this is an unfair question but you know what i mean like is there is there more of a focus on the industry of playing nice with other components that you that our company didn't make and so there are more open, it seems like there are more open standards, but in practice, I don't know if that really turns out that way. What's it, what's your impression? I think it's it, it's OEM driven. Uh, a lot of times the design engineers, um, some customers, we have customers that have a design that is all our components and it mm -hmm. makes it easy for them. I have always had kind of the joke, it's one throw at the choke. Nobody can say, <laughs> oh, you're causing the problem. And another vendor says, oh, they're causing, we're causing, they're, they're causing the problem. It's, it's, it see. comes down to they make one phone call and they get help. Yeah. But there are also, you can't make all the different specialty products that are out there. Um, yeah. You look at some of the servo motors, some of the small ones, some of the specialty environments, you, you can't, you can't make everything. And so I think that customers are starting to realize and vendors are starting, manufacturers are starting to realize that we want to make great quality products and we want to have a good breadth of products. But we at the same time, I need to be able to apply, especially when you get into some of the industries like the semiconductor and digital industries. There are people that make products specifically for those industries. Sometimes it's the environment, sometimes it's the accuracies, but they may think specifically for them. If you can't control them, and, and the OEM needs that product to be able to make their machine the best it can be, you're out. You're on, you're on the outside looking in at that point. So you want to be able to be flexible. Do you want to have as much of it as you can? Because there is an advantage to having a servo drive and an HMI and a safety controller and a machine automation controller or motion controller, whichever one they choose to go with. 
all from the same vendor. The communication is already set up for you in the software. So much of the configuration, so much of the troubleshooting is already done because they're from the same vendor. But mm. at the same time, you want to make it easy within your software to implement a third party if the third party products are needed. So it really comes down to the OEM understanding their needs, their challenges of what they're trying to make and choosing the best products to get the best machine that they can and still make it easy for the end user to be able to maintain and troubleshoot. Are there any other trends that you see that, that are coming up in the in the industry? It's... With motion, a lot of times I've, I've always told people that there are some of the things that our motion controllers can do that I could write into the machine automation controller, but in the motion controller, they're pre-done. Look ahead is a great capability within controllers nowadays. Feed forward, being able to really accurately and do well with the tangential axis. And like, for instance, like glass cutting, wood cutting, foam cutting, where you have to follow the tangent of the, the the machine. Those are things that, could you write it inside of a machine control? Yes, you could, but it's all going to be function blocks and it's going to cause overhead. Whereas we build it right in, in motion controller companies build it right into their firmware. And so yeah. now that's where we're seeing. We're also seeing a lot of very high end tuning and trying to get higher accuracies in motion controllers. Cause that's really where it differentiates, especially in the digital industry. When you're looking at how the screens are getting bigger on cell phones, but yet the cell phones themselves are getting smaller. They're getting thinner. You're getting higher accuracies. Being able to do the PWM, take the take the PWM control, the tuning out of the drive and bring it into the motion controller and let the motion controller fire the IGPDs directly. That gives you a very, very tight uh, tuning, very, very tight accuracies. We can get down and maintain an encoder counter, even in some cases, if we really get intense on it, we can get some 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 encoder count accuracy. Accuracies are getting down way beyond the nano the, the micron where we were years ago, and we're getting down into the nanometer, the single digit, double digit nanometer type accuracies in some cases. Bearings have evolved to be much much better. We now have air bearings. If mechanical bearings have too much uh, inaccuracy, we can do compensation tables and air bearings, and we can actually control the accuracy of the bearings with with the coils of the motors normally hmm. that's linear motors so there's just there's things that are just i when i go to when i go to my we call it a center of excellence when i go out to my engineering center for excellence where our motion control is i've done motion for a lot of years what these guys are doing and what they're going to be doing in the future just amaze me it just shocks me that they even come, are able to come up with these ideas so do i are a lot of companies I mean that's a lot of sophisticated kinds of programming and knowledge and and uh, in-depth sort of understanding of all of these inverse forward kinematics, uh, all the things you mentioned. Look forward. Are these things that customers, OEMs, or whoever end users are looking to their suppliers to help them tune, optimize, or? Are, is there still the expertise out there in the in the in the industry to to really take advantage of all these things? So we we are always there to help, but sure. naturally also one of the things that we want to do is we want to help the customer be self-sufficient. So whether it comes down to programming or it comes down to design configuration, we want to help them understand what we can do to help them. And that's with every every vendor, every manufacturer that makes these products. They want the customers to be able to be self-sufficient normally. What we're trying to do, and one of one of my one of my my, my global product manager who used to be one of our global engineers who's extremely intelligent in our motion at our center of excellence, 
I kind of modified a little bit, but he said the power of our of our bullshit controller lies in the ability to empower the machine, the designer, developer, designer to create a machine that surpasses all of their limitations, drawing solely from their expertise and boundless imagination. It was something that he said, I kind of <laughs> redid it. And what it is, is we're trying to make a motion controller that if they really have something that nobody's done before, we can help them and we can okay. help them accomplish what they want to do. Now, the big challenge is how complex then is the configuration, is the programming? Do we have to do special things for them to be able to get the accuracies? We, we, the way we, the way we design our motion controllers is you can get down at some, some CPUs and do things at a local CPU. Uh, we have FPGAs in them and things that really let their, most customers don't want to do that. They want to be able to do what the motion controller can do in its inherent version and run with it. And we can do a lot of great things there. So we try to be flexible that way where based on what the customer is trying to accomplish, we can give them our standard motion controller and here's all the features and benefits and here's how you do it and they can run with it and they can just design a beautiful machine. But if they get into their design process and they say, man, I don't understand how I can do this. That's where we have a whole engineering staff. We have the center of excellence, their engineers that we can look at it and help them and say, okay, you're trying to accomplish this. Let's try this and let's go and see if we can do it. And we do have proof of concept centers all across, all across North and South America and across the world. And we have one right in California at our center of excellence where they can start to do some very intense proof of concept and start to play with mechanical bearings, air bearings, whatever things that they need to be able to meet their challenge. We try to help them meet it. Great. Is there anything else that you think is important that we didn't get a chance to to talk about or I didn't I, I wouldn't I know to covered it covered everything pretty in-depthly, maybe a little too in-depthly at times. I'm sorry, but uh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 it was great. <laughs> you know, we, we joke sometimes it's been a fun ride the last quite a few years and even just in the last five, 10 years, what, what's happened, happening in motion control, you know, the higher accuracies, bringing in safety. It's just, it, it's, it's, but it's been a fun ride the last few years to watch. And as we start to gain new technology and that starts to come, it'll be, it'll be hopefully more interesting next 10 years. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Uh, this has been fun. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. It's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Design Engineering Podcast's other episodes at www.design-engineering.com slash podcast, or subscribe to the podcast via the major streaming services, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.